0: Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, my name is John Waters, and my new book of memoirs is called Role Models. In it, I, I talk about my own life through the extreme lives of others, people whose lives are they've had to be braver than I've ever had to be. They've either recovered from something really terrible that happened to them, or great success, or some sort of extreme that has influenced me and helped me get through my own life. And I hope my book will help you become a happy neurotic like I am. Tennessee Williams saved my life. As a 12-year-old boy in suburban Baltimore, I would look up his name in the card catalog at the library, and it would read, C. Librarian. I wanted these C librarian books, and I wanted them now. But in the late 50s, and sadly even today, there was no way that a warped adolescent like myself could get his hands on one. I soon figured out that the C librarian books were on a special shelf behind the counter. So when the kindly librarian was helping the normal kids with their book reports, I snuck behind the checkout desk and stole the first book I wanted on my own. One Arm read the forbidden cover, a short story collection by Tennessee Williams that I later found out had been only available in an expensive limited edition, sold under the counter in special bookshops before New Directions released the hardback version in 1954. And now it was mine. Of course, I knew who Tennessee Williams was. He was a bad man because the nuns in Catholic school had told us we'd go to hell if we saw that movie he wrote, Baby Doll, the one with the great ad campaign with Carol Baker in the crib sucking her thumb that made Cardinal Spellman have a nationwide hissy fit. I cut out that ad from the Baltimore Sun countless times and pasted it in my secret scrapbook. Hoping to one day own a dirty movie theater, I planned to show Baby Doll for the rest of my life, attracting the wrath of the Pope and causing a scandal in my parents' neighborhood. Yes, Tennessee Williams was a childhood friend. I yearned for a bad influence, and Tennessee was one in the best sense of the word, joyous, alarming, sexually confusing, and dangerously funny. I didn't exactly get Desire in the Black masseur when I read it in one arm, but I hoped one day I would. The thing I did know after finishing the book was that I didn't have to listen to the lies the teacher told us about society's rules. I didn't have to worry about fitting in with a crowd I didn't want to hang out with in the first place. No, there was another world that Tennessee Williams knew about, a universe filled with special people who didn't want to be a part of this dreary, conformist life that I was told I had to join. Years later, Tennessee Williams saved my life again. The first time I went to a gay bar, I was 17 years old. It was called The Hut, and it was in Washington, D.C. Some referred to it as the Chicken Hut, and it was filled with early 1960s gay men in fluffy sweaters who cruised one another by calling table to table on phones provided by the bar. I may be queer, but I ain't this, I remember thinking. Still reading everything Tennessee Williams wrote, I knew he would understand my dilemma. Tennessee never seemed to fit the gay stereotype, even then, and sexual ambiguity and turmoil were always made appealing and exciting in his work. My type doesn't even know who I am, he stated, according to legend. And even if the sex lives of his characters weren't always healthy, they certainly seemed hearty. Tennessee Williams wasn't a gay cliché, so I had the confidence to try and not become one myself. Gay was not enough. It was a good start, however. I was late coming out, but when I did, it was with one hell of a bang, Tennessee wrote in 1972 in memoirs, the same year my film Pink Flamingos was world premiering in Baltimore. While I was just getting my first national notoriety, Tennessee was struggling to finish the final version of The Milk Train Doesn't Stop Here Anymore and horrifying theater purists by appearing in his new play Small Craft Warnings on stage and answering questions from the off-Broadway audience afterwards to keep the show running. I never once thought this was unbecoming behavior on my hero's part, and I tried to follow his example by introducing, in person, my star, Divine, at midnight screenings of our filth epic. I never had any choice but to be a writer, Tennessee remembered at the time, and he remained my patron saint. I followed his career like a hawk. Maybe I like bad Tennessee Williams just as much as good. Naturally, his better-known classic plays are important to me, But I must confess, I'm drawn more to his supposedly second-rate work. Sorry, I also like Alvin and the Chipmunks better than the Beatles, Jane Mansfield more than Marilyn Monroe. And for me, the Three Stooges are way funnier than Charlie Chaplin. And while I knew there really was a streetcar that ran for years in New Orleans toward the neighborhood of Desire, and that destination was printed above the exterior front windshield... I get more of a kick today riding the city bus named Desire. There really is one. Now that the streetcar itself has been retired. In 2006, a box set of Tennessee Williams DVDs was released with all its best-reviewed movie titles. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Sweet Bird of Youth, The Night of the Iguana, The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone. But I wanted the bad Tennessee Williams box set, Boom, the greatest failed art film ever, directed by Joseph Losey and starring Elizabeth Taylor as Sissy Goforth, the richest woman in the world, and Richard Burton as the angel of death. Last of the mobile hotshots, the film version of The Seven Descents of Myrtle. This property is condemned with Natalie Wood, even Noir a Blanc, the 1986 Claire Devers film version of Desire and the Black Massure. Bad Tennessee Williams is better than most of the good contemporaries of Tennessee. Was Tennessee Williams nuts to reveal everything about his personal life as he got older, or was he just high? Would his longtime agent, Audrey Wood, with whom he sadly broke in 1971, have put her foot down and stopped him from baring his soul in print if she had still been in charge of his career? Since 1955, I have written usually under artificial stimulants, Tennessee admits in memoirs, before adding, aside from the true stimulant of my deep-rooted need to write. Did Tennessee ever really get over the 1960s, which he called my stoned age? To know me is not to love me, he concedes, remembering the seven-year depression he went to after the death by lung cancer of his longtime boyfriend, Frank Merlo. I am about to fall down, Tennessee announced, to whoever was present in those years, and almost nobody, nobody ever caught me. When Tennessee suddenly is level-headed, it can come as a surprise. I have never doubted the existence of God, he writes soberly, before later confessing a disbelief in an after-existence. His guarded optimism always seems to save the day. Mornings, I love you so much, he enthuses, celebrating their triumph overnight. Self-pity? Never. I've had a wonderful and terrible life and wouldn't cry for myself, would you? Hardly. Is it possible to be a dirty old man in your middle 30s, Tennessee wonders, remembering his very active sex life, the kind of sex life that we are much more used to reading about in memoirs today than we were then. Baby, this one's for you, he tells himself whenever Mr. Right Now appears. But he seems to be realistic about safe sex with strangers even before the onslaught of AIDS, recommending that penetration be avoided with hustlers, as they are most probably all infected with CLAT. He may be the only Pulitzer Prize winner to write about A200, a product used to rid your body hair of crab lice. He has standards, too. The way I feel tonight, I could fuck a snake, a young sailor confides to Tennessee one night in a gay bar. And I am proud to say that I told him to go snake hunting, Tennessee writes. Tennessee falls in love a lot, too. I have a funny heart. Sometimes it thrives on punishment, he concedes. What other memoir beside his has loneliness listed in the index? He also loved Provincetown just as much as I do. Not only did he meet two of his best boyfriends there, and Tallulah Bankhead, he wrote the line, I have always depended on the kindness of strangers, while holed up in a cabin before the summer season began. I hitchhiked to Provincetown in 1964 because somebody told me, it's a weird place, and God were they right. A very gay place, too, but a different kind of gay. I may be queer, but I am this, I remember thinking. I've gone back to Provincetown for 46 summers, and every time I pass Captain Jack's Wharf or the Little Bar at the A-House, two places Tennessee got lucky in love, I mentally genuflect in respect. Tennessee knew how to have fun with fame, too, and it seems he met many of my past role models. Jean Marais, James Purdy, Yukio Mishima... So what if Jean-Paul Sartre once stood Tennessee up? I bet Sartre was a bum date anyway. Tennessee helped William Inge, the great playwright who lived in Tennessee's shadow, through alcoholism, the blind leading the blind, and tried to understand the folie de grandeur of Lady Maria Sanjust, one of the most difficult women who ever lived. Even Trumacapote was written about sympathetically by Tennessee. But unlike Truman, Tennessee never took the upper class seriously. He hung around with street queens in New Orleans and prostitutes in Key West. And later in life, the Warhol superstar Candy Darling became a best friend. He isolated himself away from New York and Los Angeles to write. And whenever he panicked, travel seemed to be the answer. My place in society, Tennessee remembers, then and possibly always since has been Bohemia. Suppose Tennessee Williams had lived. What if he hadn't choked on that prescription drug bottle cap that he supposedly used as a launching pad for his meds? Would he have had a second wind in his career like Edward Albee? Would he have despaired and crumbled further when the AIDS epidemic hit and wiped out many of his new younger friends? Surely he would be appalled at the end of trade, as he knew it. But would he be like some of the older gay men I see in one-time hustler bars in Baltimore now who wait for these tough guys, even knowing they will never come? Would Tennessee have teamed up with Paul Morrissey? I would like him to make a film of one of my short stories Tennessee had written. And who knows, maybe these two mavericks could have reinvented each other as a pair in the same way Douglas Sirk and Fassbender did. Most important, could Tennessee have ever really hit bottom and gotten sober once and for all? On the wagon, would he have been able to continue to think up the best titles in the history of theater the way he always had? Even with all the substance abuse, Tennessee seemed to age well and remained cheerfully handsome. But if he had reached his late 70s, would he have ruined it all by getting a facelift? Could anyone have saved Tennessee? Critics? Fans? Tricks? We the readers? One thing is for sure. Flattery would have gotten us nowhere. When people have spoken of my genius, he writes with a wink, I have felt an inside pocket to make sure my wallet's still there. I never met Tennessee Williams, but I saw him once at the Pier House restaurant in Key West, surrounded by admirers, looking a little woozy, and decided maybe this was not the time for us to be introduced. Nobody has to meet Tennessee Williams. All you have to do is reread his work. Listening to what he has to say could save your life, too. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org/writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.